Welcome to Take 5 from Green Tech Media, a weekly podcast focused on renewable energy, the smart grid, transportation, and everything else in this complex ecosystem we call Green Tech. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. This week, we're talking about America's energy transition. With abundant fossil fuels in a growing but still somewhat troubled clean energy sector, the U.S. has two distinct paths it could take. Or does it? Energy expert Michael Levy talks about the polarized debate over our energy future and about the realities in energy markets. Stay with us. America is undergoing a seismic shift in its energy market. We are now producing more oil than at any time since the 1990s. We are awash in natural gas, which has started pushing coal out of the electricity system. We have doubled renewable electricity in the last four years, and carbon emissions are falling due to economy-wide efficiencies, renewables, and natural gas. Coupled with dire climate challenges in a shifting geopolitical landscape, there's a lot of change underway in energy. But this era isn't necessarily unique, explains energy expert Michael Levy. America faced a similar shift in the 1970s. You have the emergence of the modern environmental movement, the uh, first energy crisis. You have uh, later on big growth in oil production and transformation in cars and trucks. You have nuclear power still rising. So there's a lot going on in the energy world. At the same time, you've got big changes in the economy and international security and, again, on the environmental front. You have a decade of stagflation coming on and people wondering how the United States will find its economic footing. You have the Vietnam War winding down and you have Watergate undermining confidence in the political process. You have the aftermath still of the 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill. So there's a lot going on. People aren't sure what to make of it, and they're grasping for solutions. That's a lot like today. Uh, We had a few decades of calm in between, but now we have extraordinary transformation in the energy world, uh, booming U.S. oil and gas production, falling oil consumption steadily for the first time in decades, a doubling of renewable energy in the last four years or so, along with plummeting costs, and again at the same time that we can't quite figure out how to get our economic footing. We're facing a big new set of environmental challenges around climate change, and uh, between terrorism and the rise of China and transformation in the Middle East – Uh, Among other things, we're not quite sure of our place in the world either. So the parallels are pretty strong. Levy is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's out with a new book called Power Surge, Energy, Opportunity, and the Battle for America's Energy Future. I caught up with him at his recent book launch in Washington. Levy says that instead of stepping back and thinking about how we should properly handle the risks and opportunities of these energy changes, we've let fear dictate the conversation. And that means falling back on slogans, political positioning, and many myths. We could spend the rest of this conversation with me listing myths that are out there because myths are not tough to find in this space. But the biggest myth of all is that we need to fundamentally pick one side or the other, that if we want to really boost clean energy and cut our oil consumption, then we have to uh, either in, in a big way or a lesser way be against oil and gas production. Or if we are in favor of oil and gas production, We have to have that go along with uh, arguing that we don't really need to reduce our consumption of oil and that renewable energy will never be a big deal and we really shouldn't be pushing on it. Uh, This is a myth 
that is embraced by both sides, that you have to pick one side or the other. And it goes back decades. It goes back to these fundamental fights from the 1970s where people argued about whether we should follow the hard energy path or the soft energy path. And the only thing they all agreed on was that whatever choice we made at that point in time was going to have to leave the other one behind. I'm not trying to say that there aren't real choices and that we can have absolutely everything. In the book, I talk about how we need a most of the above strategy. I think all of the above, uh, saying that absolutely everything that's out there, if you can see it, you should do it, doesn't make sense. But most of what's happening in American energy does offer us opportunities to make gains if we take advantage of it in the right way. And this concept of energy independence has been a driving force of our energy conversation and policy and politics, but this is really one of the big myths uh, when you look at the interactions in the global energy system, that energy independence is very difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. That's particularly true in the oil world. If we didn't use any oil, we would not be dependent on global oil markets. Prices could triple, and we wouldn't have any direct impact in the United States. But short of that, you can't isolate yourself from the global market unless you want to go back to a pre-1970s world where markets aren't integrated and we don't have that benefit that we enjoy today from global integration, from the resilience that that brings. So the idea that if we just produced our own oil, we would be fine and we would not have to worry about events on the other side of the world is just wrong. It might have been somewhere closer to the truth 40 years ago. Had we had this breakthrough and produced all our own oil in 1973, we could have spared ourselves a lot of the pain that came from the first oil crisis. But we're in a different world today. And our interdependence in global oil markets presents a different set of challenges, and we need a different set of solutions uh, and a different set of ways of dealing with that. I think in the natural gas world, independence has a bit more to it. Uh, a few years ago, or maybe five years ago, people were anticipating uh, big increases in U.S. natural gas imports. Uh, the natural gas market is a lot less flexible, uh, a lot less fluid than the oil market. It costs a lot more to move gas from one place to another. It's done on much more rigid contracts and relationships. And so we were foreseeing a future where we would uh, have to worry a lot more about events on the other side of the world affecting our economy here through the price and availability of natural gas. So the boom in U.S. production there, I think, has measurably increased our independence from world events. Uh, but we need to keep gas separate from oil because they are very different stories. When you went around the country and talked to folks about the clean tech sector and the oil and gas boom, where does clean tech fit into this new domestic oil and gas production picture? Now, many of the challenges of renewables have been somewhat separate, but as you say, the investment climate has changed a little bit, and the uncertainties around how much oil and gas we can really produce are challenging the perceptions of what renewables can bring, and therefore impacting the, poli the politics and the regulatory environment, which also plays into the long-term picture. So if you go back five years, seven years, there were a lot of misunderstandings that drove money into the renewables world. Uh, some of the money was on solid ground, but some of it was based on fundamental misunderstandings of how the world works. People were genuinely putting money into renewable power because they thought oil prices would be high, even though oil doesn't compete with renewable power. So to some extent, there's been a bit of a corrective and people are being a bit more sensible. I worry that there's an overcorrection, that now people are overestimating the impact of cheap natural gas on renewable energy, and as a result, won't put money in there. I think ultimately, the biggest near-term impacts on renewable energy are going to come from policy decisions rather than from low natural gas prices. The reality is that if natural gas prices went sky high, renewable energy in a loose sense would be competing with coal and it would still have 
big challenges. Again, not exactly the same. Peaking power is different, but that would be a big piece of it. Part of what needs to happen is investors need to get a bit smarter about how these different markets interact. Uh, One of the reasons I wrote the book was because in the world at large and in the policy world, people live in in separate spheres. One thinks about renewables, one thinks about oil and gas, one thinks about economics, another about security, and you need to bring them together. One of the problems you get in the investment world is because you also have this balkanization, someone thinking about investing in renewable energy is going to make a decision, maybe a bad decision, to get out because of a total misunderstanding of the impact that natural gas will have. So I think in the investment world, people would be better off if they had an integrated understanding of these different technologies. The venture capital community has made somewhat of a correction. They put a lot of stock into technology development. Now you're starting to see them look at clean tech as a way to seep into the cracks in the energy market and then to grow from within. How much of a correction do you see there? And, and can you characterize that in your reporting for this book? So everyone out there in the clean tech space who's mandate allows them to is looking for a way to make fracking cleaner uh, instead of just looking for a way to develop new solar technology or uh, energy efficiency technology. And it makes sense because if you can get a small piece of a really big market, you're doing great. Uh, whereas in the renewable space, you need a pretty big pace, piece of a, of a limited but, you know, but growing market. So there is this pull on capital over to the natural gas world. I think you would get more capital that could go into both spaces if they're Uh, if there was confidence that people could make money on renewable energy. I think that the more fundamental challenge here is that venture capitalists got into the space without thinking about the match between what energy technology requires and what venture capital is capable of delivering. So venture capital can deliver modest amounts of money. You want to exit in five years with pretty high multiples. you know, that might be good for developing an energy efficiency app. It might even be good for developing uh, some kind of solar installation projects. It's not good for developing large-scale energy technologies, large-scale uh, automobile technologies. It's just very limited. We don't really have a great financing vehicle for that. One of the things I learned when I dug into the history of venture capital is that venture capital didn't come from God. Venture capital has not always existed. Venture capital was invented. And it was invented in the aftermath of World War II. It took decades to get off the ground. And eventually it became an awesome way of financing uh, IT in particular and biotech to some extent, though with limits. So before that, you only turned to government to develop those sorts of technologies. And today we're in a similar place, but for energy technologies, we don't have a financing vehicle for people to put money into projects with high technology risk, uh, long timelines and large scales of capital that are required. And so you do need government to be part of it. And when you go to these companies and you go to company after company, and I did this in working on my book, you find out, uh, not all that surprisingly, that policy is a hugely important factor in what they do. I visited a factory outside of Pittsburgh where they were building large curved mirrors for solar installations. And they had bought this very large factory and started to install equipment based on the belief that there would be strong U.S. policy on carbon and strong U.S. policy to support solar development. When I got there, the factory was half complete. It had been sitting half complete for a while because U.S. policy had not materialized in the way they expected. And when I asked where the crate of mirrors sitting on the side was being shipped to, they said, these mirrors are being shipped to India. Why? Because India has a national solar mission that's supportive of the growth of solar technology. 
And even though these were huge, heavy, ridiculous-to-ship panels, that's where shipping them made sense. So policy is a huge variable in the equation. They weren't going to India because natural gas is more expensive there. They were going there because that's where the policy was in place. So what do you think about U.S. clean energy policy? We've used these blunt instruments like a production tax credit, like an investment tax credit, uh, renewable energy standards, these targets on the state level that require a certain amount of energy. Have the tools that we've used been effective compared to other tools that may be out there? There's always room to improve these tools, and each one has uh, different analysis in the end. Uh, and you can dig into each specifically. For example, the production tax credit would be better off if it were a refundable credit or a grant uh, because a good chunk of it goes to the banks instead of to, uh, instead of to project developers themselves. I think in the long run, you want a broad price on carbon that helps drive investment in, into cleaner energy technologies. But in the short run, I'm not so convinced that even that would would promote the innovation that we need in truly zero carbon energy. The credibility of a carbon price over the long term is going to be limited. Uh, not everyone can look out 20 years and say, I believe the government policy will stay intact and I'm going to make a bet based on that. So I think you do need still some of the cruder instruments to support development and investment up front that helps bring costs uh, costs down. But it needs to be done in a smart way, in a, sustain- in a financially sustainable way. Otherwise, you get a bit of what it's happening in the debate in Germany right now, where as soon as you have supportive policies that start to really bite and really have an impact, they get too expensive and you have a big battle over getting rid of them. What were the biggest surprises to you when you wrote the book? Were there any major assumptions you had going in that you were able to break down as you did more reporting? Probably the biggest surprise to me was the intensity of divisions in the communities where oil and gas development are happening. And not only divisions along traditional partisan lines, because I don't think that was the most prominent, but divisions basically depending on whether you were winning or losing from what was happening. I met with uh, couples who disagreed on whether they should be uh, allowing leasing on their property. I met with friends whose only real difference uh, wasn't ideological or partisan. It was that one owned land and the other didn't. And guess what? The one who owned land was in favor of shale gas development, and the one who didn't was against it. So I think you see that in very stark ways. At the same time, you also see that these debates we have in Washington at a very theoretical level have very real consequences for people around the country. These are not Uh, theoretical debates. And the economic situation in a lot of the country is pretty desperate. We talk again in theory about uh, how many jobs could be created by natural gas development. And we talk about a lot of theoretical economics there. But you go to some of these places where they don't see another way out. They've been uh, farming for decades and the farming prospects aren't particularly great. And they see this as one of their only real opportunities. So uh, we again, we have these these philosophical debates, but a lot of this really hits home for, uh, for people out there. Another thing that struck me was in Washington, you see this polarized debate between clean energy and efficiency on the one side and oil and gas on the other. When you go to people who are actually working on business development, on new projects, you don't see quite the same level of polarization. Uh, in a lot of places, I was surprised. I went and visited uh, a pair that was working on using 
uh, captured carbon from natural gas and putting underground to boost oil production. And I said, do you have many friends around here? I was meeting with them in their office in Berkeley. And they said, you know, it's awkward sometimes, but we fit in. We're Democrats who like oil and gas. It's a bit unusual, but uh, we can do it. I met with the CEO of a battery company who bragged about his natural gas vehicle, and he didn't have all that much internal tension about that. These were all practical decisions. You meet with people in areas that are being transformed by shale gas development and are enthusiastic about it, but they'll still tell you that they worry about climate change and that we need to also get clean energy sources out there. So there's a lot of pragmatism out in the world. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot, uh, there, there are big swaths where people aren't all that pragmatic and where the public is also polarized, but it's certainly less polarized out there than it is in Washington. And I think that's one of the interesting pieces of this debate is that it's far more complicated, far more local, and far more long-term than people really realize. One of the places where I had to repeatedly challenge my prior beliefs was on the distinction between local decisions and national decisions. It's very easy when you're in the Washington policy world to say everyone in their community should step back and let her rip and we should unleash oil and gas development, we should build wind turbines and power lines and solar arrays wherever they need to be because we've got these big national problems that we've got to solve. And we do have these big national problems, and we do have to transform our energy systems in order to tackle them. But you can't just ride over local concerns. Local concerns are strong, and they pervade all energy sources. I met a filmmaker who had been focused on traditional environmental films until people started to build wind turbines in her town in an irresponsible way and cause big noise problems and disruption and conflict within the local community. When I wrote a draft of my book and I showed it to people, they said, we find it implausible that environmentalists are opposed to wind development. It's good for climate change. And I went back over and over and I said, I don't care if you find it implausible. It's what's actually happening in places. This conflict between local concerns and national concerns, it's different. You don't have wind spills and uh, you don't have uh, the same kinds of issues in clean energy development as you do in oil and gas. Uh, but those local challenges are real. And this idea that if we only focus on clean energy, we'll be able to avoid them, I think is wrong. Uh, figuring out the right way to respect local communities, to integrate development of old and new energy into local communities so that we can solve our national problems, I think is one of the big challenges. Michael Levy is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. You can check out his new book, Power Surge, on Amazon. And you can read more about where clean tech fits into the new energy landscape at greentechmedia.com. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes for automatic updates. And if you like the show, pass it along to your social networks or to your friends and colleagues. Thanks a lot for joining us. We appreciate you listening. For Take 5, I'm Stephen Lacey. Stephen Lacey.